Last week, we looked at only four verses from Exodus 20, verses 18 through 21. These verses describe the reaction of the people of Israel to hearing the Ten Commandments from the mouth of God. If we were to summarize their reaction in one word, that word would perhaps be fear. In their fear, the people came to Moses and asked him to be their mediator so that they would not perish in hearing the voice of God any longer, nor being consumed by the purifying fire of his presence on the mount. And we learn from further commentary by Moses on this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 5 that the Lord is not altogether displeased with their reaction. God desires that his fear would always be before the people so that they would not sin. But the people's main fear was that they would not die, rather than that they would not sin. The passage pointed us toward Jesus Christ, who, like Moses entering the darkness of the cloud to be in the presence of the Lord, entered the darkness of the cross to secure salvation for all mankind. So as Moses was the mediator of the old covenant, Christ is the mediator of the new and better covenant. Jesus is the mediator between God and man, and his is the only name whereby we must be saved. I've titled today's message, First Things. And the reason I did that is because Exodus 20 is a bit of a strange chapter in that it gives us the Ten Commandments, and then it gives us the people's reaction to the Ten Commandments, which is a separate paragraph. But then it begins to give the civic law. Rightfully, these last few verses, 22 through 26, should be in the next chapter. That's what I would do if I was dividing the chapters, but I'm not. Um, And they never consulted me on my opinion. So uh, we'll leave them as they are, and we will look at the introduction to the civic law for the people of Israel in these verses. With today's message, we move forward from the Ten Commandments and Israel's reaction to hearing them into the beginning of this civic law, the law of the nation, of the newly redeemed nation of Israel. If you'll recall, the civic law is the application of the law to ancient Israel. Many Bible scholars believe the next several chapters of Exodus up to the middle of chapter 23 make up what is referred to as the Book of the Covenant, which Moses mentions in chapter 24, verse 7. It is also mentioned in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. This is like the constitution or the charter of ancient Israel, their founding document, which made them distinctive from all the surrounding nations. This Book of the Covenant opens where we might expect with instructions regarding worship. So let's read together Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 22 through the end of the chapter. This is the word of God. Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me, gods of silver, Or gods of gold you shall not make for yourselves. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, 
your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, once again, we are truly grateful for your word this morning. We ask that your spirit who inspired Moses to pen these words would be the spirit that uh, opens our hearts and minds and our eyes to your word here as well this morning, that we might take the truth here and the principles that it teaches into the week ahead. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. We left off last week with Moses entering the dark cloud at Sinai to be in the presence of the Lord. That is where we find him this morning. As I mentioned just a moment ago, the civic law of ancient Israel began with God's instruction regarding the purity of worship. What constitutes proper worship and what constitutes improper worship? Remember, the tabernacle had not yet been built, so there was no particular place that the people could go to worship. And Moses here is accepted as the mediator. God is no longer speaking directly with the people of Israel. He has accepted the plea of the people that he would speak to Moses, and Moses would relay his message to the people. And this becomes the method God would use with his people on and off for the next 11 centuries, sometimes with great frequency, sometimes there would be gaps of silence. But when God needed to communicate with the people of the 12 tribes of Israel, he would commission a prophet and send him with a message to his people. These prophets also wrote down the words of the Lord so that they would be preserved alongside the Ten Commandments and the other writings of Moses. We see the phrase, says the Lord, and it's used 854 times in the Bible. The final book of the Old Testament is the book of Malachi, and this is where we find the final time this phrase is used in the Old Testament. Let's just look at the final words of says the Lord in the Old Testament. Malachi 1.5, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. Malachi 1.11 For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the nations. Over a couple chapters, Malachi 3.1 Behold, I send my messenger, And he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. Finally, Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, the final words of the Old Testament. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel, 
with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. And then there was silence from heaven for 400 years. The final word uttered by God to the Jews rang out over the next four centuries, and that word was curse. Sherem. The word means that which is set aside for utter destruction. When we find this phrase, says the Lord now, in the New Testament, it is always quoting the Old Testament scriptures, with one exception. Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, where the glorified Savior, Jesus Christ, speaks to John and says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Other than quotes from the New Testament, and that one exception in Revelation, never in the New Testament do we find in the Bible, in, the New, in, the, in that New Testament, the phrase, says the Lord. And that is because after 400 years of complete silence, angels suddenly appear in the skies near Bethlehem to some lowly shepherds out in the field and announce that the Lord himself is coming. He is a savior, Christ the Lord. He would be a little baby lying in a manger, and with his advent, the silence of heaven has come to an end. The book of Hebrews opens with these words. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So that is why they didn't need to say, says the Lord. The Lord was right there. Moses goes on, he restates the second commandment. I think there's probably good reasons for this. The first thing I thought of was God was able to look ahead and he knew the first sin that the children of Israel were going to commit, making that calf of gold. But there's a lot more to that as well. You shall not make anything to be with me, gods of silver or gods of gold. God never revealed himself to Israel in any physical form or image. Therefore, they were not to make any representation of him for any purpose. I think there's a very, very practical reason for God's reminder to the people of this commandment. After living in Egypt for so many generations and seeing the Egyptian inclination toward representing their gods with statues and carved images, the hearts of the people of Israel were bent toward falling into that practice, even now, 
that they had been delivered out of Egypt. Perhaps even deeper than that is mankind's propensity for making carved representations of their gods. Everywhere we look in the ancient world, cultures that did not worship the one true God of Israel had idols and carved images representing their myriad of deities. There is something within the sinful heart of man that craves a visible representation of that which they worship. I have some theories about why this might be, but we won't go into them this morning. In today's world, we don't often go into people's homes and see a shrine to some god or other with an idol sitting in its midst. There's one place I went way back when I was still at university, but that was a very odd home. And in the West, at least, although we may see this type of thing more in Eastern religions, like those found in India, perhaps, we don't have temples in which we find a statue of some god to worship and offer sacrifice to. No, in the West, idol worship has become much more subtle. Our gods are crafted in factories, and we carry them around in our pockets, ready to obey them immediately when they call. And our temples are shopping malls with images of our gods plastered all over the walls, promising that if we will only fall down and worship at their feet with our offering of money, we too can recreate ourselves in their image. The reason that this is more subtle is that there is nothing wrong with owning a smartphone. There is nothing wrong with buying the items we need or even the items that we get some enjoyment from. But it is when our hearts cross that little gray line into covetousness, we have replaced the God of heaven in our hearts with one of the many gods this world throws in our path. And we have almost imperceptibly slipped into idolatry. 1 Corinthians chapters 8, 9, and 10, which we have been discussing in Sunday school at some length, have so much to say about this. Okay, let's finish up chapter 20 with a final look at the last three verses, 24 through 26. Altars and sacrifice. It has been said that the Old Testament is like a richly furnished but poorly lit room. In many ways, it is when we shine the light of the New Testament back onto the Old Testament scriptures that we see the depth and beauty of what God was doing and telling us in these ancient accounts. That's what I'm going to try to do with these last few verses this morning. <clears throat> I think it would be, I think it would have been very difficult for the readers of the Old Testament or even the people of Israel that first received these words to fully comprehend what God was trying to tell them about altars and sacrifices 1,500 years before Jesus even entered history. But what I want to work from is what we do know, not what we don't know. So let's lay some foundational knowledge before we look at the end of chapter 20. First thing, the Old Testament in its entirety points to Jesus Christ. 
Sometimes it is in prophecy. Sometimes it is in a person or type. Sometimes it is in the smallest details, and sometimes it's in the largest overarching story. Think of the book of Esther, for example. Let's read Luke chapter 24, verses 44 and 45, which take place shortly after Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Then Jesus said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. What were the scriptures? The Old Testament scriptures. The second thing we know, the entire sacrificial system of Israel is a shadow of what would be realized in Christ, right from Passover lamb to the Day of Atonement. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 read, So let no one judge you in food or in drink, or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come. But the substance is of Christ. And Hebrews chapter 8, verses 3 through 6 read, For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one, Jesus, also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Keeping this in mind, let's return to today's text. The first instruction is if they are to make an altar of earth. An altar of earth. The English word altar comes from the Latin word altus, which means high or elevated. It is related to the English word altitude. Altars were raised places, which would give them prominence and dignity. But the Hebrew word for altar, mizbeach, means a place of death and sacrifice. This altar is made of earth, made of the dust of the ground, just like Adam back in Genesis. In this sense, this is a very human altar, made of some of the same material which makes up man. It is not a highly decorated, intricately carved altar, constructed of the most precious metals. That would come later. This altar is made out of dry ground. There is no form or comeliness. When men see it, there is no beauty that they should desire it. To me, this altar of earth points forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, who in his first advent would come in the form of men, ordinary in appearance. The altar he would eventually embrace would also be made of two simple beams of wood, 
nothing fancy. But we cannot separate the cross and the one who hung there. When we speak of the cross, we are not speaking primarily of two beams of wood. We are speaking of the Savior and the work of atonement he accomplished there, offering himself as the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, completely satisfying the wrath and judgment of God, and also completely satisfying the justice and mercy of God in the Lord's perfect work of love. Don't let the humble appearance of the altar distract you from the infinite sacrifice that is offered to God there. The other option that the Lord gives is an altar of stone. They could make an altar of stone. The Lord gives the people this second option. Stone is strong and weighty. It endures from generation to generation. But there is one particular rule the Lord gives if the people choose to make an altar of stone. They must not change its natural form in any way. I think there are probably a couple of important reasons for this rule. One, to shape or to fashion the stone in any way would be treading dangerously close to making an idol forbidden by the second commandment. And two, to shape the stone would be to take the altar, a type of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, and shape it in a way that the worshiper prefers rather than leave it in the way it was found. Let's look at a couple of scriptures that touch on this. Firstly, the gospel is God's message, not one up, not one made up by man. What man would create a gospel, a story of salvation in which his God was crucified by the hands of men? If I were making up a religion, I don't think I would have the death of my God as its central story. This is not man's story. If we are to receive the message of the gospel, we must receive it as God's story, God's solution to the sin of the world, not man's to shape and ornament the way we would like. It is God's. Let's read 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. And he goes on with that account. This is God's story. Paul received it from Christ. And it is according to what God had said in the Old Testament. Secondly, let's turn to Daniel chapter 2. In this chapter, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, has a troubling dream. In this dream, there is a giant statue with a head of gold, a chest and arms of silver, 
a belly and thighs of bronze, lower legs of iron and feet of mixed iron and clay. Then a stone strikes the statue, pulverizes it to dust, and grows into a mountain, filling the whole earth. Nebuchadnezzar calls all his wise men and magicians in to tell him the dream and its interpretation. And of course, you remember the story. They come in and they say, Nebuchadnezzar, tell us the dream. We'll tell you what it means. And he's like, nah, you've tricked me long enough. You tell me what I dreamt. Oh boy. Now the pressure's on. They began to sweat. But in any case, uh, they were not able. So in his wrath, he orders Nebuchadnezzar orders the execution of all these so-called wise guys. But Daniel comes before the king and tells him that the God of heaven has revealed the dream to him. And so he proceeds to tell Nebuchadnezzar the dream and what it means. So we'll pick up the reading in Daniel chapter 2, verse 31, and we'll read through verse 35. You, O king, were watching. And behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became, became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. The stone is cut without hands. This is God's work, not man's, just as the altar must be. The stone cut without hands is called by Daniel a kingdom set up by the God of heaven, in verse 44, which shall never be destroyed. Well, a kingdom needs a king, and that king is the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. It was forbidden that man should attempt by his own effort to adorn the altar. If he did, he utterly profaned and polluted it. And in all this, if any man attempts to add anything of his own to the altar, let's call it the message of the cross, or the work entirely accomplished by Christ, if he carves anything away, or if he adds any ornament to it with human merit or self-righteousness, the effect would be that the altar is stripped of all its virtue. It's not like it's been made better, and it's not like it's only been made a little worse. It is utterly polluted. It has no strength anymore. And which is greater, the gift or the altar which sanctifies the gift? Let's just read Matthew 23, verses 16 through 22, which are the words of Jesus. Woe to you, blind guides, 
who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift. Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. And so... Without Christ, even the most contrite person would perish right alongside the most rebellious and hard-hearted person. It is Christ who forgives. It is Christ who atones. And whatever we add or take away from his perfect work pollutes it. That's kind of the center of my message today. Let's just tie up with a couple little things. God mentions two types of offerings that could be offered there on that altar of earth or stone. Picture of Christ and his atonement. The two types of offerings are burnt offerings and peace offerings. The distinction between burnt offerings and peace, peace offerings was given a little later, actually in Leviticus, and I think it's actually even in the first chapter. And it's given in quite a bit of detail. Let's just briefly look at one of the small differences between the two types of offerings. In the burnt offering, the entire animal was consumed by fire on the altar and the smoke would rise up toward heaven. It's really interesting language study there. I'll just, this is a little bit of an aside for those of you interested. You don't need to know this, but I found it fascinating. The Hebrew word for burnt offering has to do with the smoke rising up. But then, as you all know, the Bible, the Old Testament, was translated into Latin, the Latin Vulgate. And for burnt offerings, uh, the Latins used a couple words, um, hollow, meaning whole, the whole thing, entirety, cost, burnt. A burnt offering is a holocaust. And that's where they adopted the word that the, the smoke from the furnaces were rising up. Um, and so they used the word holocaust, holy burnt. Two out of every three Jews was killed in, in the holocaust. And so that's, anyway, I thought you might find it interesting that that's, that's where the word came from. But in any case, it helps me to remember holy burnt. That's a burnt offering. The entire animal was placed on the altar and it was entirely consumed, everything. And the smoke would rise toward heaven. In the peace offering, certain parts of the animal were burnt on the altar, and certain parts were kept aside for the worshiper or for the priest later on to eat at a sacred meal. And so without spending too much time here, I would encourage you to prayerfully look for Christ in both these types of offerings to God. 
Finally, the last thing our passage says is that there are to be no steps. On first glance, this seems like a strange statement. God wanted no human exposure at the place of worship. I can see the practical value in this rule, but the underlying truth is a little more difficult to capture. I think we may have to go back to the Garden of Eden to see more fully what is happening here. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were originally naked and did not experience shame. But when they sinned, they realized their nakedness before one another and before God. So they decided to cover themselves, their shame, with clothes they made with their own hands from plants. But God, in one of his first lessons of atonement to mankind, slew an innocent animal and made tunics from the skin to cover the shame of Adam and Eve with the work of his own hands. God does not want man to think he needs to cover his own shame when he comes to the altar to sacrifice to him. Man's own covering has no place at the altar of God. The shame of man's sin is between the individual and God, and it is the animal on the altar that is given to cover or to atone for sin. And so it is at the cross of Christ. Our flesh has no place there other than to be crucified with Christ. When we come to the cross, we come alone with no merit of our own. It is the sacrifice of the one hanging there that is our covering and our cleansing and him alone. It is at the altar of the cross that we receive the blessing of God. We could also discuss how man, through his own effort, by climbing the steps, is powerless to reach heaven. It is God that must come down to meet us where we are. But for the sake of time, we'll leave that discussion there, incomplete as it may be. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you again for your word. Help us as we're reading these beautiful and powerful Old Testament narratives that we would be recognizing it as your story. This is not a story about Israel or a story about a prophet or least of all a story about us. This is a story about you. So help us to search for Christ in the scriptures as we, as we sometimes navigate difficult portions to understand. We pray that your word would speak to us by your spirit as we go through these stories. We thank you for this time again in your word, which is transformative and powerful. We pray that you would comfort those that are still uh, suffering with this flu bug that is going around, that you would give them patience to endure and that you would restore them to health. We thank you for the time that we can be here in this place together as your people. We ask that if there's any that has heard the message of the cross or understood it for the first time this morning, that your spirit work in their hearts to draw them to eternal life in Christ. As we go from this place, go with us by your presence. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.